0: Thank you, Don. And I apologize for giving you that, passage. That was a tough one, wasn't it? Boy, if you get through that, which you did, you can get through any of them. When I was a boy in the 1960s, yes, you heard it right, the 1960s, I had to dutifully watch the nightly news. If I wanted to watch TV, that's what was going to be on. Walter Cronkite, you know, that's the way it is. And uh, For the three people that lived through the 60s, you'll, you'll know that was dead on. Uh, but anyway... We we got a lot of news about Vietnam, but the the good happy news of the day was always about NASA and our trip, you know, our race to get to the moon. You had the Mercury missions and the Gemini missions and then the Apollo missions and all of that, and it was an exciting time for us as a country. And my uncle Tom worked for NASA. Yes, he did, and I know you're impressed by that. Uh, I was I was very impressed. Uh, my my Uncle Tom graduated in English from Ball State University. Hey, <laughs> hello! Well, which, no, honestly, that, mad respect if you can graduate from the English department of Ball State University. But that's another story. It was a tough department. But he got a job, I think it was probably with a subcontractor for NASA, and he pushed paper. That was his job. Like he, I think he corrected copy. Now, but he worked for NASA. And like he could send me neat gifts like, you know, ballpoint pens that said NASA and stuff like that. And I had bragging rights. I could go to school and say, hey, you know, my uncle works for NASA. You know, my chest was was all, all you know, busting with pride. Did not change a thing about my day-to-day life. I didn't get a better you know, grade on any spelling test. I didn't win any more fights on the playground. You know, at the end of the day, Debbie Duncan chased me most of the way home most days. None of that. But I had something. I had a big picture thing that I could take hold of that really, to me, was a big, it was a big deal. We have an interesting passage here today. You may not have, you know, it went past you and Maybe you were not picking up on just how interesting this passage is. But Paul is on his way back, and he's been on his way back for a while. He's been on his way back to Jerusalem, and he is driven to get there. He's driven to get there. He wants to get there uh, by Pentecost. And what seems to set itself up here is almost a resistance, a back-and-forth tug of war. Paul is driven to get there, and it seems like everybody in his path is driven to keep him from getting there. Everybody's telling him, don't go. You know, don't go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is, it's almost as if Paul is disobeying the Holy Spirit, but he's not. We'll we'll get to that in a moment. Why in light of all those warnings does Paul feel so compelled? And it's not like Paul doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. Why is he so compelled? And this is, this is the nub of it for me today. And I hope, I hope this much, and maybe this is the only real takeaway here, but you know, Paul is a big picture guy. Paul was one of those rare men who had his eyes set out there on the horizon. He saw the big picture. And I think if we could get a hold of that as Christians, it would be like a Copernican revolution in our lives. If you're talking about like living a victorious Christian life, this, this, this is getting very close to, I think, the, 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 the bottom line. Do we have that big picture? So let's review the passage. Uh, I know I laid it out a little differently than I sometimes do. So you've got this big half of the bulletin area there where it's like, what's going on here? We're going to go over the passage first. Then we're going to kind of back up and just make some applications. So it's a little different. So you'll, you'll, you'll bear with me here. It says, and when he parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to coasts and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Paul is with his crew. Not only is Luke included in the crew, because now it's we and all all of that, and you can kind of trace these passages with the we, and you know that Luke's there, and other times he's not. But here Luke is along, and so are all of these men that come from the various places where Paul has ministered. It is, it is like he just, it's like everywhere he went. Like, you know, you pick up souvenirs when you travel and bring them home to your kids. Paul's like, ooh, I'm going to have to take one of these home to Jerusalem when I get there. And he's just collecting these, these men along the way, these, these disciples. And he, so he's, he has this, this, this entourage that he's taking back with him. And you'll recall, I've mentioned this before, he's bringing an offering. You remember that? He's been collecting an offering among the Gentiles. Luke does not mention that when we actually get to Jerusalem, which is kind of weird. He hasn't told us that in chapter 24. So three, three chapters later, Paul will be looking back, talking to Felix, and he'll say, Oh, yeah, when I came to Jerusalem, I came because I wanted to bring this this offering so this is Paul he's he's got this collection uh, from the Gentile churches he's got this collection uh, of these of these disciples and he's bringing them there we also know Paul was trying to get there in time for Pentecost 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 was one of the major Jewish feast days and Paul is determined to get there by then and the question is why is Paul trying to get there well, among the Jewish feasts, three of the feasts, three of the major Jewish feasts, were connected with harvests. Did you realize that? Passover was connected uh, with the barley harvest. I mean, there's other obvious spiritual reasons why these were celebrated. They weren't just harvest festivals, but but they were connected. You see, you had, you had the barley harvest at Passover, at Pentecost you had the wheat harvest, and then at the Feast of Tabernacles, it was, it was celebrating the, um, the grape and the olive harvest. So all of these things figure in. Um, so forgive me if I'm reading too much into this. But at all of those, at all of those feasts, um, that, of those three that we mentioned, there was always a Thanksgiving offering, a first fruits offering that was brought from the crop. So it would have been barley, wheat, and, and so forth in that, in that way. Do, you, you're, you're tracking with me? Yes, so here they are at Pentecost, and what is Paul bringing? He is bringing with him these financial gifts that come from the Gentiles being given to their Jewish brothers there in Jerusalem. He's bringing that. He's bringing the, again, like I say, this entourage. It's as if it's if as if he's bringing a harvest um, offering to a harvest festival i think that's the reason he wants to be there he wants to be there to declare the power and goodness and faithfulness of god it's kind of like he's saying look at what god has done he wants to get to jerusalem at that time with that harvest motif and say look at what god has done so let's look at all the attempts that are made to hold him back from that before that just a little word about the travel he's traveling along the coast of asia minor how many love these map details? How many can just, just do without? Anyway, I, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be faithful to it. So he's, he's kind of traveling down the coast of Asia Minor. Just think reverse because I can't make my hands go the opposite way when I'm looking at my map. So um, anyway, so he's come down along that coast of Asia Minor. He's traveling probably in like a coastal vessel, something smaller, what we would call a puddle jumper if, if we're talking planes. Like, you know, you're going from one little place to another. They're coming along the coast, and they get to Patara. And at Pater, Pater's a, a, a big sort of seaport. And there he grabs an ocean-going vessel, you might call it. He's going to make a 400-mile uh, across the Mediterranean trip to the Holy Land to get to Tyre. And he's going to sail below Cyprus. So that's your, that's your little geography lesson uh, of the day. And, and they get to uh, Tyre. Seems to be Paul's first visit there. Um, we don 't have any indication he 'd been there before it says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed, and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home so paul Paul gets there he doesn't know anyone of all indications this is the first time and it they have to go looking for the brothers and sure enough there is a christian community there and they and they connect with them can you imagine how exciting it would be to have paul just drop in on you like you're just having an average day in tire uh, nothing special um, you know, there's, you're going to have your normal church service and uh, and in comes Paul wouldn't that be something how many would be relieved if Paul could just walk in right now and take over for 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 years truly wouldn't that be something mean, you'd have to understand Hebrew I guess but uh, but it'd be fun right it'd be fun to have him anyway uh, so he spends time there they bond very quickly it's only seven days but in seven days It's clear that they really have an emotional, spiritual connection. Because when you get to the end of it, it looks just like what happened at Miletus with the Ephesian elders. And, I mean, he'd spent a couple years with the Ephesian elders. And so it's not strange that they were crying and kneeling down and praying together. But here the same exact thing seems to happen. And, uh, yeah, it just shows the the power of, of, of the Spirit at work there and Paul's personality. Here's the tricky uh, anomaly that, that pops up, and uh, we read it. It says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, what's, what takes you back a little bit when you hear that? Is Paul being disobedient? Is Paul being stubborn? Well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I don't, no one can stop me. Well, the Holy Spirit can stop you. No, he can't. I'm still going to push on. Is that what's going on? You're going to just, just go with your instinct here. No, that's not, what, that, that's not what's happening. In fact, if you go back to chapter 20, verse 22, it says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. What does that mean? Constrained. It means I'm bound. I can't get away from it. The Holy Spirit is getting me to Jerusalem one way or the other. I, I don't have any say in the matter. That's what's going to happen. So what is happening there? Can both be right well, here's what's happening, and, and I think it's pretty clear. When, a little reading between the lines and then the rest of the passage, you put it together, you see what's happening here. Paul was being told, this is what's going to happen when you get to Jerusalem. Now, Paul perceived that the Holy Spirit was saying, and so go and suffer. And these people who were hearing from the Holy Spirit, hey, Paul's going to suffer, their response is, oh, no, he. we don't want that to happen. Just... If the Lord woke you up in the middle of the night and said, You know that plane that your parents are getting on tomorrow to go home on their flight, it's gonna crash. And that's that's the extent of the vision you got. What would you assume? Mom, Dad, don't get on the plane. Wouldn't that that'd be the only message you would hear? And I think that's exactly what's happening. Through the Spirit, they understood what was going to happen, and so they're warning Paul, don't go. It's, it's, it's the natural instinct that they don't want to see something happen there to, to Paul. Well, they leave. They continue by ship, it appears, um, as they leave the beach there. It says, when we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. You may remember that 1980s song, you know, Ptolemaeus, Ptolemaeus, Ptolemaeus. Oh, that was Amadeus. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. It rhymes with, rhymes with, rhymes with Amadeus. Uh, Ptole- Ptolemaeus. And we, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So they're working their way down the coast. Nothing major happens there. Just a, overnight, they spend time with the brothers. Next day, they come to Caesarea. You all know Caesarea, right? We've talked about Caesarea before. Um, actually, this, this is kind of one of those funny things. Do you remember Philip? You've got to go way, way back for Philip. You've got to reach back 10, 12 chapters. But Philip was one of the seven that were appointed to wait on tables. So he's kind of a proto-deacon, if you will. And you'll recall Philip, as an evangelist, he was showing himself to be an evangelist even then. he goes to Samaria, and he gives the gospel to the Samaritans. Remember that. And Then, after that whole thing, you see Philip again. He pops up on uh, you know, uh, with, with the Ethiopian eunuch on the road and, and he leads him to Christ and Then, the last thing we read, which is going all the way back to chapter eight, is it says, "But Philip found himself at asce this is when the spirit apparently just like transported." Philip. It says, uh, but Philip found himself at Ascetus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel because he's an evangelist to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, and that is where we left Philip. And this this whole time, you've been like, Luke, what happened to Philip, right? Okay, but that's, anyway, that's, that's, that's Luke's habit. He likes to drop these things, give us information, let it go for a few chapters, and then let it ripen, and then he comes back. So it says, on the next day we departed, we came to Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And I just love, uh, again, I love, I love the way he does that. Phil, and you'll see more of that from Luke. But uh, Luke mentions that Philip had four daughters Four daughters that were unmarried, and they were prophetesses. Interesting. You're like, should that surprise us? No. No. In fact, if you go back to Pentecost, you'll recall that that Peter interprets what has happened. as a fulfillment of the prophet of Joel, back in Acts chapter 2. And he says, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There's an interesting conjecture here, and it's just kind of a conjecture, but, uh, but if you put some pieces together, it makes a lot of sense. We know that Luke mentions certain women that no one else mentions. We know that Luke went to a lot of trouble to bring all the information together to write the book of uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts. It has been surmised, because he mentions so many women that others don't mention, that that Luke must have derived a lot of his stories, his his accounts, from women who were witnesses of various events. Then there's this little tantalizing bit from church history. Eusebius writes that of these four these four women, these four prophesying daughters of Philip, that they lived long enough that they were able to tell the church father Papias. A whole account of the Jerusalem church. Isn't that interesting? Does it matter? Not a great deal. They're not even the ones who end up prophesying here uh, as, we, as we go on. Who prophesies to Paul there at Caesarea? You remember Agabus. It's Agabus again. And once again, there's Luke doing that thing. Do you remember where we met Agabus before? So, well i don 't know but it 's probably ten chapters back or so, yeah, chapter eleven back in chapter eleven there was this is before the first missionary journey. this is after paul 's come to Antioch. Yeah, have Paul and Barnabas, and there 's a word from Agabus the prophet saying there 's going to be this famine, and so they take the collection to Jerusalem. remember that so that 's the last time we saw agabus and there 's a collection being taken then it 's interesting Paul is i, I don 't know it 's just a coincidence, but paul 's once again taking a collection to Jerusalem and in comes. Agabus. And at first glance, it looks like Agabus is telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It looks exactly like that. He takes Paul's belt. And so don't think like, um, you know, the leather belt we wear. Think of uh, any Bible play at VBS you've ever seen. I think we probably had a few examples of this this year. But it was not like a little leather belt. It was like a piece of cloth, a big, long piece of cloth that you could wind around your, you know, and accessorize. You could get different colors. And it was, but anyway, the long <laughs> he had this long belt on as was usual. And so Agabus comes, and, and it must have been strange. Uh, he took... Paul's belt off of him. Well, what's this? It's Agabus, so you just got to go with it. Um, And he takes himself and he ties himself up like a calf at a rodeo. And then then he proceeds. It says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, note what Agabus does not say. What didn't he say? He didn't say so don't go to Jerusalem he does not say that because of this it says they tried to stop Paul they urged him not to go what would you do what else would you do of course you would tell him Paul look what the Holy Spirit's telling you and it says then Paul answered what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be in prison but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus this sounds for all the world a lot like Peter's profession, you remember that, Lord, I'm willing not only to go with you, you know, I'm willing to die with you. It sounds like Paul is kind of almost thumping his chest a little bit there, but it's not. It's it, it's not being arrogant. It's not being an unbridled optimist, like, well, oh, maybe it won't be so bad. And that's that's not. He he doesn't mean that or say that. He's not saying everything is fine. He is simply saying, look, I'm willing. I for the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever it would be. You know, you're breaking my heart. You're killing me here, right? You're killing me, Smalls. I mean, this is, this is not good. Don't keep, you know, you're just, you're just throwing gasoline on the fire that's already burning there. I don't, I don't need that. You're, you're breaking my heart with your tears. But I'm ready. I'm willing. I, Paul has that big picture view. His question is not, how does this hurt or affect Paul? His question is, how does this glorify the name of the Lord Jesus? So that's the big picture. So that gets us to to our point. Live your life with the big picture view of what matters to God. If, If we could get that straight, if we could get that just deeply entrenched in how we look at the world, how we look at life, we would be so much better off. First of all, see the big picture of God's faithfulness. Let's go back to this whole offering thing again. Paul has this driving sense of necessity that he has to bring this this offering with him to Jerusalem. Why? Why does it matter that that, that people see this, that people see in in both the financial offering and in these representatives of of all of the mission fields where Paul has been? Why why does it matter that, that people actually see this? Why does he have to bring a... First fruits offering to this sort of first fruits festival of Pentecost. Well, bringing the first fruits under the Old Testament uh, covenant, the Old Covenant, it was a way of declaring God's faithfulness to His promise. It was a way of saying God has done what God has said He would do. God has given us the of, of you know of of the um, sun and the rain and and all that is necessary for these things. God is blessed, as God says he will do. In my quiet time, as I was prepping this lesson, I, I happened on a Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 is not about one of the three festivals we've talked about, but it's an interesting one because it's God instructing the people of Israel about what they were to do when they came into the land, when they first came into the land and they had their first harvest. Because think about this, and I know it raises all kinds of questions, like who planted that crop that they harvested the first time in there? What was their enemies that God had subdued? And God says, like, when you get there and you start harvesting that, you bring the first fruits as an offering. And that offering was there to declare, to say to all the world, look what God has done. This was not our doing we didn't plant this we did we were disobedient we spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness but God in faithfulness brought his covenant people into the land that he promised and he has given us his salvation it was it was all of that it was all that kind of a declaration and now Paul is doing that with this figurative sort of basket of first fruits of the Gentiles it's an act of of faithfulness it's it's as if Paul is saying hey do you remember when Jesus said that you begin, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses beginning in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. You remember that? You remember that? You remember when he said, lift up your eyes to the harvest. And if it's white, you know, the, the, the fields are white for harvest. You remember when he said that? You remember, huh? And you remember how he called me and he said, you know, I'm going to send you the Gentiles and, and, to declare my name. And, 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 and yeah, and this is what God has done. God has been faithful. Now, our situations are a little different than Paul's, um, and I have a gift of understatement. We, we, yeah, we're not apostles, and there are a lot, of, a lot of differences there, but we can still ask the basic question that, that, that I'm kind of laying out there for you, which is, um, is my heart full of gratitude? Do I see the big picture of God's faithfulness in his harvest among the Gentiles? Well, that's kind of an oddly specific thing, though. Harvest among the Gentiles. Where would, I, where would we see evidence of that? Look around. Gentiles, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> right? We are the harvest. We, we're here today, you know, 2,000 years later, in, the, in, the, in this other continent. And, and this is part of that great work of God, the part of the faithfulness of God. And God is still doing that, and the kingdom is spreading throughout the world. It's, it is going from place to place, and we get to be not only the harvest, but we get to be harvesters, don't we? And that's, that should be the, the big picture above everything else, shouldn't it? Doesn't cure your cancer. Doesn't fill your empty bank account or whatever momentary affliction you are suffering. We get fixated on on our problems. And I understand that. I mean, we're all human, and, and, and these things, I mean, gosh, they affect us directly, don't they? So, of course, they, they, they get at us and, and, and they bother us. And, and in God's providence, all of those things are part of His will and work in our life. And He's, He's fashion us, even in trouble and trial, He's fashioning us into the image of, of Christ at the end of the day. But, but lift your eyes over and above all that. You know, why do you think Jesus said, lift your eyes to the harvest? Just out of curiosity. Why did they have to lift their eyes? Where had they been looking? Right here, right? And that's where we're looking most of the time. And, 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 I, and I get it. But God says, "Lift your eyes. there is something beyond just the temporary problems and i 'm walking with you, and you can pray for your daily bread, and, and that 's okay, and that 's good, and you can trust me for everything that you 're anxious about. But beyond that, look above to the bigger truth what What have I accomplished? What have I done? Where is my faithfulness? Do you see it? Look, listen to what uh, peter says peter 's speaking to some of the most dejected, uh, troubled. The worst sorts of tribulation kind of Christians of of his day, he says to them, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, him who called you out of darkness into marvelous, his marvelous light. God is faithful. And I'm not saying that our other problems don't exist. They do, and we walk through this, and God is with us in this. But but lift lift your eyes and look at the faithfulness of God to, to his kingdom promise. And then next and lastly, see the big picture of the name of Jesus. What motivates Paul is not his own fame and reputation. He is not worried about the name of Paul. Sometimes it seems like he is, but it's for the sake of the gospel. If you see what he says to the Corinthians when he's talking to them, he says, who's Paul? What's Paul? What's Apollos? Men, just servants who preach the gospel to you. Paul is willing to die to himself. A few verses earlier in Miletus, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, but I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that exactly what he's wanting to do there in Jerusalem? When everybody was trying to save Paul from pain and imprisonment and death, what is it he values? What, what is, if you put it down into a nutshell, a very tight nutshell, what is the thing that really motiva- motivates him? The name of Jesus. It's the na- and here, when we're talking about the name of Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, his mission, his kingdom, his gospel, the proclamation to the Gentiles and all the rest. That, that's what. And, and for the sake of that name, Paul will give everything. He's willing to, to lay it all down for the name of Christ. He's kind of like John the Baptist. When John the Baptist uh, looked at G- uh, Jesus and he says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's Paul's heart. Down here, if we're myopically self-focused, to uh, you know, we it can become about us really quickly. How many kind of live in that place where you just it's kind of about you? I I'll be one to say a lot of you know, more hours than not in the day I'm probably more focused on on yours truly than, than than the bigger things. And and when that happens, you know, it's it's very easy to lose sight of what really matters. And the more we elevate ourselves and the more we think, but I really need to think about me and I really need to think about my worries and my anxieties and my difficulties and my trials and my ambitions and whatever, the more we get focused on that, the less satisfied we are. Because there's never in, into the total number of troubles one human being can experience. I don't care who you are or how rich you are. You've always got trouble. You can always get focused on that. And we just don't make very good objects of worship, which is what we're really doing. We we're not. That's not very satisfying. You can spend all day long trying to serve yourself, and at the end of the day, how satisfied can you be? If at the best, you know, at the at the end of the day, the best you can say is, "Well, I served myself pretty well today." Am I happy? Because we're not. Yeah, we're not God. We're not. We're not really worthy of that. Paul was worried about the name of Jesus. Years ago, a young Christian. Um, Used a, a phrase that I heard for the first time. She, it was some something that she frequently would say. And it was a little cynical. A little uh, kind of book of Ecclesiastes kind of thing she would say. Her phrase was, well, it's all going to burn. All right? Whenever we were talking about this, that, or the other thing, you know, like, oh, we're going to get married. But we got to get an apartment. And where are we going to get an apartment? How are we going to afford it? And what will we put in the apartment? Whatever else. is she'd say, That's eh, all going to burn. Meaning, eh, you know what? It's, it's going <laughs> to... At the end of the day, what does it really mean? Now, that's a little cynical, don't you think? Kind of like another phrase I, I heard a lot when I was young and repeated quite often myself, which is, you know, life's hard, then you die. Um, that's cheery. Um, yeah, I was full of those. But um, you know what What if we took a biblical truth and made it into a statement? I never hear people say this, but it seems like it'd be a good one. What if What if? in the midst of whatever our anxiety or difficulty was, what if? what if we just said, but is the name of Jesus being glorified? But is the name of Jesus being glorified? So you're going through, say, cancer. Let's say, let's say you have a cancer scare. Many of you have and many of us will before we're all said and done. And you're going through that, and it's scary and all those things. But what, if, what, but what if close to our lips and close to our heart was the question? Yeah, but, but what if the name of Jesus is being glorified right now? Would it be worth it? Would my cancer be worth it? Would my hardship be worth it? Would my financial difficulties be worth it? Would my relational stresses or strains or whatever, or my job security or whatever it might be? Is Jesus Christ being glorified through this? Do people see Christ elevated because of his, his faithfulness and because of, of, of my confidence in him? Taking a bunch of money and Gentile believers to Jerusalem exalts Christ, and even that brings imprisonment and possible death. Paul is willing to lay it on the line. Wouldn't it be good if we were in that same same place? Like, you know, I don't care what I could lose my house, I could lose my job. What I don't know, but it, but will Christ be glorified? I could go and add more uh, more thoughts to this. Uh, there 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 are other principles. I just didn't have enough sermon. Time to to fill this out. They end up saying, "The will of the Lord be done," and that's a bottom line for us as well. Which I just don't have time to build out, but I think it's familiar to you. Is the will of the Lord being done at the end of the day? That's what you turn it over to. Whatever you're going through, the will of the Lord. Another thing that that popped up at me is just the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the uh, of the Gentiles. Uh, here's an interesting thought. just It's kind of an aside, but you can just tuck it away if you like. Um, and it's a conjecture, so I'll, I'll accept this conjecture. But apparently at Pentecost, the, the priest would hold up two loaves. There were two loaves of bread. And people have puzzled about that. But if you look at what's happening at Pentecost when Paul gets there, what you have happening here is sort of the, the merger of the Jewish church and the Gentile church. There's this sort of collision happening, and it's sort of like a presentation almost in the next, when we get to the next one, next section, is going to almost be like a presentation of both. So there's some of that going on. Again, I don't have time to make a lot out of that, but bottom line, live in light of the kingdom. We're part of NASA, baby. Huh? And Debbie Duncan will still chase you home from school at the end of the day. But, dog, I mean, we, 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 we have something that we, no, we're not literally part of NASA, but we're part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. A kingdom which has no end. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Lord of King of kings, Lord of lords, forever and ever. You know, you can hear the hallelujah chorus going, but that's all scripture, right? And that, that he shall reign forever and ever. Ever and he's going to come again, and we're going to enjoy that kingdom with him forevermore. So, what am I saying at the end of the day? Don't sweat the small stuff. Everything's small stuff. It's not. I hope it does. It's not quite that. Yeah, there is some truth to that, but the, just the bigger one. If we could walk away from this with the idea of man, whatever else I'm going through, God is faithful, and if the name of the Lord Jesus is being glorified, it's all good. Let's get that big picture. If you're not part of the big picture, if you're if you're not uh, part of the people of God, I just how could you not want to be part of NASA? You, 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 I know it's lost a lot of cachet, but in the '60s, I'm just telling you that was that was uptown. And uh, how how could you not want to be part of the kingdom of God? How how would you not want that? Be you know be brought in. We used to sing that song, bringing in the sheaves. We could just break out in a chorus of it now, if you like. Bringing in, yeah, there you go. Bringing in the sheaves, man. And, and you thought it was about uh, Thanksgiving and harvest? No, it was. The song is about bringing people into the kingdom of God. And we would like to just bring you into God's barns today, if at all possible. If you would want to be part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you must repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and you will receive. Eternal life, and you will be part of, of of the greatest kingdom, the kingdom that has no end, and uh, and as you grow in that, hopefully that'll be the big picture you keep. Lord, we pray right now that uh, that you would continue to do that work. We know you will. You'll do it in spite of us, Lord. Um, you'll you'll bring the stones to cry out if you need to. You'll raise up other people if, if you have to but but that kingdom is going to be proclaimed. we want to be part of that in in every way shape and form that we know how to be. We've seen your faithfulness, we witness it we're part of that. Um, Lord keep our eyes focused on that and we will go through hard things and hard times and give us strength help us Lord to see the big picture and and to worry not only about our own issues within that to ask that question, whether or not, Lord, you're using it to show your faithfulness and glorify the name of Jesus. We want that, and we pray right now that that in the name of Jesus and by your Spirit, that you might draw uh, a, a lost sinner to yourself today, and that they may be brought into the kingdom. For Jesus Christ's name's sake, we pray.